Welcome to the podcast of RUF at Boston University. All right, hello. My name is Nathan. I'm the campus minister. It's good to see everyone and to be here tonight. Thanks for coming on a rainy Tuesday night. Um, I want to encourage you. I don't say things that uh, are always the clearest that they could be, and I don't have all the answers. And we do these discussion groups in order to further discuss and mull on and think on uh, these truths in Scripture. So I'd really encourage you to stick around for the discussion groups, especially tonight, because tonight's going to be a tough, a tough topic and a tough um, maybe bring up some questions for you. And I think these discussion groups are a good place to, to do that. So uh, please stick around. Um, so we're in this series on Revelation. We're kind of coming at it from a theme of hope. Uh, there are 22 chapters, and they're only 11 weeks, so we've got to do about two chapters a week. Um, because of that, we're not able to read every single verse, but I'm going to be reading some big chunks today, so bear with me. So this might have been when some of you were born, but in 2001, the World Trade Center in New York City was attacked. And I remember this very clearly. I remember I was, in, uh, I was in high school, I was a junior, and I remember the questions that arose after that. You know, there's immediate questions on the day, but then you kind of start asking some deeper questions, like why, like who did this was one of the first questions. And we actually had somebody come and say, we did this and this is why. Uh, but there's a deeper question even beyond that one. Why would God allow this kind of thing to happen? Only three years later, on December 26, 2004, an earthquake in the Indian Ocean caused a tsunami that led to widespread destruction on multiple continents, both Africa, uh, Indonesia, Thailand, several different countries, uh, killed over 227,000 people and displaced over 1.75 million people from their homes. These acts of God cause us to question God. <laughs> they cause us to question bigger things. A lot of Christians, their response, a lot like uh, a lot of other people and a lot of people from different religions, uh, was one of compassion, of grief, of humanitarian aid, but there are also attempts to answer the question, why would God, in other words, the God of the Bible, allow this sort of thing to happen? This massive destruction. Was God responsible? Is this a natural occurrence that's completely outside of his control? You get that there's a whole host of questions that this kind of event might raise for you. In both cases, God's goodness and his power is called into question. Uh, one atheist playwright put it this way in the 1950s, uh, a play, kind of a play on the book of Job. Um, he said, if God is God, he is not good. And if God is good, he is not God. So he's an atheist. He basically says, neither option is a good option to me. That's a, a direction he took it. That's a conclusion he took it. Maybe you are, a, 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 you want to look at for naturalistic cause and effects, uh, cause and effect explanations for these sorts of things. 
But still there lingers this question, why? Yes, we know it. a tsunami happened because of an earthquake, and you might be able to even explain why an earthquake occurred. But what was behind that? And is there anyone who will bring justice to the thousands of deaths that occurred? Maybe it's a humanistic explanation that the reason why these terrorists attacked the U.S. is because of uh, societal factors in their environment, their education, their upbringing, the evils and ills of society that caused them uh, to do this. Even if that is an explanation that you might hear, neither faces the truth of the vileness of evil directly in the face And neither faces the goodness of God in a truthful way. So these questions I'm just kind of posing right now, and we're going to kind of work through how these two chapters in Revelation uh, begin to, if not answer the questions, reorient our questions. In these chapters of 6 and 8, which I invite you to open your Bible to, uh, sorry, it's actually the first like few verses of chapter eight, but it's really just six and seven. Um, uh, God allows war to break out. He allows conquest to occur in these pages, uh, earthquakes, pandemics. He allows death, sickness, all under his sovereign plan. And in chapter seven, we have this interlude where this amazing story of the opening of the seven seals um, kind of is interrupted with this prophecy that gives a ton of hope for those who find their hope in Christ, those that are sealed forever, who are secure to the bitter end in him. We uh, had a weekend retreat on friendship, and it was really good to hear the talks on what it means to be a friend. And if any of you were there, you remember... Uh, one of the speaker's messages was that good friends tell the truth, even when it hurts, even when it's uncomfortable. And also, good friends are the type of people who say, don't give up. I'm going to try to be a good friend to you tonight. (laughs) There's some hard truth. And believe me, it's really hard to be uh, up here talking about some of these things to you. But... There's also reason to not give up. There's also reason to take heart and to have hope. So we're going to begin with the hard truth, and then we're going to move on to the beautiful promise uh, that gives us reason to not give up. So the hard truth is these seven seals. In the seven seals, there's destruction that comes on the earth, and I'm about to read about uh, a few of these seals this is one of three episodes in Revelation. So we have a, set, a series of sevens. There's going to be seven seals, seven trumpets, and then seven bowls. And in each one, there is increasing destruction that God brings on the earth. In this one, it's a quarter of the earth that is affected. In the next one, it's a third. And in the final one, the third one, it's the whole earth. And you may be wondering, is this where it's going to get kind of weird? Is this where we're going to start interpreting the newspaper and show how it's connected to Revelation? I want to be up front, be a good friend here, and show you where I'm coming from and where I think the Bible takes us. 
is that these are predictions of actual occurrences that have happened, meaning after the book of Revelation was written, after John received this revelation, they happened in the near future to him. They are happening now, and they will occur in the future. So I'm not an either or, <laughs> I'm all three. It happened, is happening, and will happen in the future. And there's a lot of symbolism here. There's a lot of symbolism. And symbolism doesn't put this up in the stratosphere of this is not true. These symbolic numbers, these seals, these horses, all mean something and are referential to things that will actually take place. So that's where I'm coming from. You'll remember last week we were in the the throne room of Revelation 4 and 5. You guys remember this this, uh, vision that John had of this great throne room, these four uh, beasts, uh, these elders, these 24 elders, and they were worshiping God, who was good. And he had in his right hand, while he was on his throne, he had this scroll. And on the scroll were seven seals, you know, those this old-fashioned like wax seals that uh, keep a, a letter or an envelope uh, together and sealed so no one opens it. And there was no one who could open the scroll. There was no one who was worthy, but there was a lamb in this vision who was slain. We know that lamb to be Jesus of Nazareth who, who died for the sins of the world. And he was the one worthy to open the scroll and to undo its seal. So what we're about to see is the unfolding of what happens when each one of these seven seals is broken, when they are opened. I want to read from the, the first few verses to be able to discuss these four horses. Now, you might have heard this, this phrase, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is where it comes from. So starting in verse 1. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the voice, uh, sorry, the, the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come, and I looked and behold a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the living creature say, the fourth living creature said, come. And I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Stop there. Conquest, war, famine, death. These four horsemen. Why would... The Lamb of God who was slain. Why would Jesus open these seals and allow these sorts of things to happen to the earth? In the fifth seal, we see a reason given for the bloodshed. 
Let's look at the fifth seal. This seal showed the souls of those, it says in verse 9, who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had, been, they had borne. So in the fifth seal, we see the reason for this bloodshed in these four horsemen is to avenge the death of the martyrs, those who had been slain merely because they called themselves Christians, merely because they associated themselves with Jesus. Histories of martyrs are really tough to read, right? That's no surprise. Uh, I'm going to read an excerpt of a historian um, named Tacitus to give you just a little bit of an idea of what we're discussing. We're not talking about one-off martyrs. We're talking about massive bloodshed. In Rome, A.D. 64, there was a great fire. And Nero, who's the emperor at the time, blamed this on the Christians. So in Rome, they, were, uh, they worshipped pagan uh, deities and, and had a whole you know, religion. So they were considered religious. And these Christians were part of the sect, and they were considered superstitious. So they were viewed with suspicion. And this fire that broke out was blamed on these Christians, wrongfully. And so for their supposed crime, they were arrested, they were tried for their, quote, hatred of the human race. And then they were killed. And so I'll quote here from Tacitus. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames. These served to illuminate the night when daylight failed. Nero had thrown open his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or drove about in a chariot. Even for criminals, there arose a feeling of compassion. But it was to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. In Revelation, we read that the, the souls of the martyrs cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The souls of people like the ones that Nero had tortured and killed are crying out, sovereign Lord, sovereign, which means king, ruler, powerful over all of this. You are holy and true. You are good. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And these seven seals and these four horsemen, they have their answer. Judgment is coming. There will be a reckoning. In the sixth seal, the coming of Jesus is predicted. Whenever there's an earthquake, we know that God has come. It says that the stars were falling from the sky like a fig tree shaken by the wind. I've never seen a fig tree um, with a lot of figs, but I can imagine what that looks like. And I can imagine what it would be like to have stars falling from the sky like that. Earthquakes made the mountains lay flat and the islands be moved. In each of the first four seals, there's partial destruction. It says that a fourth of the earth was killed. Even in the famine, it says, and that might have been kind of a riddle for you, the, um, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius. In other words, 
the basic grain to live on was very, very expensive. But it says, do not harm the oil and wine. Not everything was affected by this famine. It says a fourth of the earth was killed. But in the coming of Jesus, and this is just kind of a foreshadowing of what's going to be unfolded in the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, uh, there is complete judgment. In verse 15, and we'll read through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone Slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide from, uh, from us the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand? Everyone. Everyone is affected by this. This is one of a few questions in the book of Revelation. Last week, we had the question, who is worthy? Who is worthy? In this throne room, this kind of control tower of the cosmos, God is all-powerful. Nothing happens apart from God's will. There's nothing. And when the question was asked, who can open the scroll in the hand of God? The question is, who is worthy? No one, but Jesus, the lamb who was slain, was worthy to take the scroll. Only he is the just judge. Only he is the perfect man, the only innocent one. And before him, who can stand? Who can stand? Um, In my own story uh, of just my journey of faith, which I became a Christian about Five years old. So uh, it's it's been a little while, 32 years. Um, The times that God has shaken me to my core is when I'm made aware of my sin to the point where I realize what I deserve is God's judgment. And I realize that this lamb who died for me is also the one who is worthy to judge me, if not for his blood that washed me, that covered me, that made me whiter than snow. When I realize who can stand, not I, not even I can stand. I realize there is one who can stand, Jesus, the one innocent, pure, perfect one who stood before the wrath of God, took on that wrath for me and came out the other side. The cross is magnified. Jesus is magnified. When I realize I would not stand if I were to get what I deserve. One of the first martyr stories is in the book of Acts where Stephen, the first deacon of the church, is martyred. He's stoned for his faith in Jesus by the religious ones, by like Rome, like Nero. They were the ones in political authority. They had the power. And here were these Christ followers, these upstarts, these superstitious ones. 
And one of the zealous religious ones who was in a lot of authority, who stood by silently and held the cloaks of the men as they stoned Stephen, his name was Saul. And Saul was there when one of the first martyrs was killed. But Saul's story didn't end there. He was confronted by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus and repented and became a convert to Christianity himself. And he's known as Paul, the greatest missionary and church planner that's ever lived. He was a martyr maker before he himself was a martyr. Why? Well, for the sake of Christ, the first martyr who forgives those who killed him who on the cross says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Friends, this is good news, even for those who killed Christians back in the day of Nero. Jesus was the one who was flogged, mocked, spat on, shamed, abused, and crucified. The lamb died to save those who killed it. That's how rich his blood is. It can cover even the blood of those who killed Christians. We have an interlude. The sealed ones. At the end of it all, how can we know we're safe? How can we know that we stand with Jesus? How can we know that? I want to enter into that question a little bit. Chapter 7 describes the vision of the sealing of the 144,000. And a lot of times, guys, this is used as a limit, as a number, like, God, am I, am I one of the 144,000? Keep me in there, save a spot for me, you know? Um, this is a symbolic number. This is where it's really helpful to, to understand the kind of numerology of the Old Testament. There are 12 tribes in Israel. Each of the 12 tribes are blessed, but this list, if we could skip um, to that, maybe one or two, yeah, if you see here, um, there's interesting clues. It excludes Dan. Dan gets left out for unknown reason. It includes Joseph, who isn't one of the names of the 12 tribes. So we know that there's something different going on here. It includes Joseph here. These 12 tribes are symbolic. The 144,000 is a symbolic representative number of those who are chosen by God as saved. And then it goes on. It says that there was a, a multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from all people, from all languages. And it says that, there, that you couldn't number them. And they were clothed in white robes and with palm branches, just like Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a donkey. They were, they were praising God. Who are these people? Who are they? Well, they're the ones whom Jesus has saved. In verse 10, it says, And crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then it goes on, And these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the lamb. They didn't bring their robe. Their robes were washed by the blood of the lamb. 
They're the ones who were once martyr makers, now forgiven martyrs. They're the ones who through fires, the fires burn around them. They are not touched by its flame. They're the ones whom God in his mercy has spared. In verse 15, it says, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. There will be no famine. There will be no drought. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We all know the song Stevie Wonder sings, Signed, Sealed, Delivered, I'm Yours. All right? Hey, baby, Signed, Sealed, Delivered, I'm Yours. I'm not going to sing it. Did you know that the line right after that, he sings a little more softly and maybe a little less catchy so you don't even know the tune of it. It says, you got my future in your hands. Signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. You got my future in your hands. This is what it means to be a Christian. To be sealed with the name of the living God such that you are signed, sealed, delivered. That mail's delivered. <laughs> you are with God in heaven, in the throne room spiritually as we speak. It is good as done. In his eyes, you are with him. And one day physically, you will be resurrected and be with him forever. But there is surety in God's eyes. And we say, I'm yours. Right? The, the praise of the righteous, the praise of the Christian is salvation belongs to God. It's not me. I didn't save myself. I'm not bringing my good works and my list of good deeds that I've done. I'm saying salvation belongs to God. The Lamb saved me. God saved me. When we begin to doubt our faith, all eyes on us. Right? That's the most introspective time in my life when I'm doubting my faith. Right? And I, I do that. I do that too. Um, but when I'm able to take eyes off me and look at Jesus and say, sign, seal, delivered, I'm yours. I'm not mine. I'm yours. And my future is in my hands. This changes all of our questions. Deeper than questions of why would God allow this pain and suffering, which is a good question, we are forced to ask, who can stand before a holy God? To the question of God's responsibility for suffering, we are confounded by the cross. The problem of pain, that center that answer on the cross. God's son sent to die for those who killed him. To the question, at the end of it all, am I safe? Am I safe to the bitter end? We are met in the gospel with a yes, signed in the blood of Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the objective work of Christ on the cross that we can point to him, that we can look to him, that we can remember him and take heart and be encouraged and not give up. Lord, we pray for those who, who feel like giving up, that you would set their eyes on Jesus, that you would show them how much they are loved and accepted and free in him. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.